everyone, this is Kate Kelly, founder of Ordain Women. And I just wanted to talk about the Feminist Mormon Housewives podcast. It is just such an invaluable resource. I love listening to it. I came to a point in my life where I just really needed to hear the voices of women telling stories about women. And that's what this podcast is. Lindsay's series about polygamy is unique and totally unprecedented. It's a wonderful resource and women doing wonderful work deserve to get paid. So please support the podcast if you can. If you can make a regular donation of just $5 a month, it would mean a lot. And it means not only that you continue to get wonderful material and stuff to listen to, but it also means that women doing this work are supported, which is important. So please support the Feminist Mormon Housewives podcast. To another episode of the Feminist Mormon Housewives podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay, bringing you another episode in the Year of Polygamy series. If this is your first time tuning in, I would recommend going all the way back to episode one. This series is meant to go in order. Before we get started, I just have a few announcements to make. So I've had a lot of people say that they would like to see Year of Polygamy in a separate RSS feed so they can share with family and friends. So we are working on that right now. If you would like to donate towards that cause, donate on feministmormonhousewivespodcast.org. The Year of Polygamy series will be featured on a website that will be launching soon, yearofpolygamy.com, and we'll have all these episodes here. It will still be affiliated with Feminist Mormon Housewives as these episodes are recorded by Feminist Mormon Housewives. So that's an exciting new announcement, and I thank everyone for their encouragement and their donations in helping us get that off the ground. Second, we're going to be doing a few things with with this series. Up until now, the history of polygamy has been largely sort of a white American story. And uh, it troubles me because, you know, Mormonism is a global church now. The majority of Mormons are not Americans. They are not white. And so it feels really, really Utah-centric to focus so specifically on that. So, you know, in a way to sort of remedy this, I'm going to be talking about the the missions that the church is going on and how they expand in later episodes. I want to talk a lot about the people that are living around Mormons, especially, you know, the indigenous tribes of Utah. And I've tried to incorporate them where possible. Still, the story of polygamy is largely a story of white Americans. Now, that does not mean that it should only matter to white American Mormons. The story matters to everybody because as I hope that I've been arguing in this podcast, polygamy and the doctrines and the history of polygamy still very much permeate our culture, our mindset, and our theology today. And I will continue to show uh, evidences of that in this series. So what we're going to be doing on the podcast is a little... It's a little bit chaotic for my taste. It's been a little bit overwhelming because there's just so much information and so much good information out there. I mean, I could spend a hundred years talking about the frontier period because that's what I love. You know, I love these stories. But 
We do have to move on. And of course, as we're coming to the end of the year 2014 and we're spreading out into 2015, it's going to be a little bit over a year. But I figure as long as we stay under 365 episodes, we should be fine to fit into our theme. But what we're going to be doing is we're going to be moving into the fundamentalist sects of, of this history. And we're also going to talk about the LDS church. I am going to treat the LDS church as if it is one of the different factions of Mormonism. And so we're going to be talking about the history of the LDS church and how it moves into the contemporary times, into modern day times. And I'm going to do the same thing with the other groups of Mormons that broke off because of the manifesto. So what we're going to be doing is bouncing back and forth. So we'll do an episode maybe on where the church was at. Then we'll do an episode on, say, the order or the AUB or something like that. So you have that to look forward to. We're going to be kind of bouncing around, and I hope that it makes sense from a chronological standpoint. Uh, this is very difficult to tell history in a timeline when it branches out in so many interesting ways like this, but we will do our best. So today is going to be a short episode. I just want to talk about a woman who I think her story tells a lot of interesting things about this history for us. What it does is it tells us about the shift in generations. I think that's the most important takeaway from her story. This this is going to talk about what happens when one generation who grew up practicing polygamy um, and is, you know, banned and outlawed in their time, what happens to their children and their children's attitudes about the practice. That's one thing we're going to talk about. And another thing we're going to talk about is just I want you to pay attention to how men and women interacted. In this woman's life, she spent a lot of time with with uh, men that were not her husband, as would many women who were married into polygamy. They were alone. They would take visitors a lot. And I think it's interesting because in the contemporary LDS culture, at least in America, it is very much fearful of intersex relations. We don't want to have men and women spending any time alone together. We, in fact, we prohibit it. We put policy in place. But it just wasn't a luxury, if you would call it that, that they had in the frontier. So with that long-winded introduction, I'm going to introduce you to someone who had an amazing life. Her name was Mary Lois Walker Morris. And I just want to give a shout out to the USU Press, uh, Utah State University, my alma mater. They have done some great, I mean, they, they do great, great history as far as Utah is concerned. And they have these great collections of these women's stories. And they, I'm looking at this huge, hefty bio that's edited by Melissa Lambert Maluski. And she has all of these journals and diaries of Mary Lois Walker Morris. Mary Lois Walker Morris has a fascinating story. So she, she does kind of the typical quintessential pioneer story. She, she is a young girl in Leeks, England. Now Leeks, the town of Leeks was an English town between London and Manchester and had a population of about 4,300 people in about 1831. She would be the daughter of ecclesiastical teacher and her mother was very refined and cared a lot about the refinement. In fact, it said that when her sister, when uh, Mary Lois's sister immigrated to America, she wrote a letter to the family and Mary Lois's mother writes back to her saying, quote, I am sorry to see you spell so incorrectly, but as you have a dictionary, never write a letter without having it at hand and habituate yourself to looking for any word that you cannot spell. 
By doing so, you will spell correctly. And now, my dear child, let me beg of you, as perhaps a last request, to refrain from singing vain, silly songs. You think how they degrade you in the eyes of whose esteem you should covet, end quote. So she grows up with that pressure, and we see this theme throughout her life. She um, would be a woman who would really try to always be improving herself and refine herself. I'm going to read the introduction from her bio. It says, quote, After enduring a ship voyage from her native England to an unknown life in America, a long walk across the plains to Utah, the death of her first husband when she was only 19, and the loneliness of plural marriage, Mary Lois Walker Morris may have thought that she had overcome the major challenges in her life. Yet, as the 1880s began, her life was about to turn upside down again. During the next decade, as the federal government challenged the practice of polygamy and pressure mounted for Utah to become more integrated in the United States, Mary Lois's church leaders and fellow Mormons faced prosecution and imprisonment. The pursuit of polygamists threatened her own marriage, and in 1885, after 29 years of marriage, she and her husband, under duress, publicly separated. Mary Lois's memoir and diary provide a deeply felt account of how she experienced and negotiated this time at a great change in Utah, end quote. And I think that that, that tells her life sort of in a nutshell. She comes from England. Her, her family converts together. They were concerned about her father losing his job, but they decide to convert. Uh, they come over to Utah. She sort of, you know, she walks across the plains and she, she loses her husband and she's only 19. Her and her husband, her first husband, was John Morris, and they embark on their journey from St. Louis to Utah on May 17, 1853, and they were in the Joseph Young Company with the rest of the Morris family. She records walking 20 miles by the wagon each day, and it would take them about five months to get to Salt Lake City. And when they get there, the young couple rented a small room in Salt Lake City, and her husband was a painter, and he obtained commissions to paint several portraits, including life-size paintings of more Mormon apostles Parley P. Pratt and George A. Smith. In October 1854, Mary had a son whom they named John Walker after his father. But during the winter, that would be a rough winter in 54, the baby's health began to decline, and they were really concerned about his health, and a doctor found that that the baby just really had trouble breathing. So they they were told that if they went to southern Utah, the climate would be better for the baby's health. So they journeyed to Cedar City to visit John's family. But the baby wouldn't make it. The baby passed away. Meanwhile, her husband's health started to decline as well. And she would care for him in southern Utah with his parents. And it's said that on his bedside, Mary Lois asked if he had any last words, and he said, Quote, if anything should happen that I do die, I do not want you to leave the family, end quote. And then I guess the story goes is that he turns to his brother Elias, who had married a woman about three years earlier, and said, will you take Mary and finish the work that I have begun? Elias said, I have no objection if she is willing. Mary Lois agreed to the plural marriage with Elias Morris, and a few hours later, on February 20th, 1855, John Morris passed away. Now, this is, this is what we would call the Leverate marriage. Mary Lois would claim that she learned about this. Her and her husband John learned about this in Orson Pratt's The Seer, which we talked about Orson Pratt put out in 1852. She would write that her and her husband read and believed the teachings of The Seer, including 
the law of ancient Israel, that if a man died without issue, the brother should take the widow to wife and raise up children to his deceased brother, that in the morning of the resurrection he might take and children she had born in the second marriage and present them to his brother. And of course, this is sort of a biblical practice, this Leverite marriage. Uh, we find it in Deuteronomy, and we also find it in Genesis with the account of Onan and Tamar. Onan is slain by the Lord because he does not fulfill his duty to raise up the children of his dead brother with his brother's wife. And as we see pointed out in sort of the Joseph Smith narrative where he passes away and Brigham Young and M.S. Lyman and Heber C. Kimball step up, Deuteronomy also defines Leverite marriage as applying to kinsmen, not just brothers. If there are no brothers available, then then they uh, the kinsmen are supposed to step up and take care of these women. Like Ruth's first husband died, she marries her husband's kinsman, Boaz. And, of course, the doctrine of this Leverite marriage would say that Ruth's children with Boaz are heirs of her first husband. So we see this played out, right? We see this played out in, in polygamy, in Mormon polygamy several times, because it's this idea that Mary Lois, her husband John dies, so she marries Elias Morris, and he becomes her husband in name and in practice... But he's only sort of this temporary stand in this temporary replacement for John Thomas Morris, with whom she would be reunited in the afterlife. Her children with her second husband would be her first husband's posterity in the afterlife. It's kind of confusing. But, you know, we know that Mormons are experimenting with this. We know that before Brigham Young even crosses the plains, he's starting to mess around with these sealing practices. He would be sealed to several families, and some women that were his adopted daughters through this sealing practice, he would also later marry as wives. So it's it's really messy how these, these people saw these heirs and these lines, but it is clear that they understood them to have this sort of, I don't want to say sexual and I don't want to say romantic, some sort of... Um, spousal component that it that getting sealed to you know someone as your brother or your son was one thing to do but plural marriage was like the most important way to connect families in the afterlife mary lois believed in this principle but that does not mean that it was easy for her here's what she said she said quote so was i while yet in my teens bereft in the short period of 20 days of my husband and my only child in a strange land, hundreds of miles from my blood kin, and with a mountain of difficulty before me, end quote. She said one evening she was walking near a spot she had gone with John, and she, quote, was reminded of his absence and my intense loneliness. As I wept bitterly, I could see, as it were in a mental vision, the steep hill of life I should have to climb and felt the reality of it with great force. I considered the covenant I had made with my husband on his deathbed. Was I willing to endure whatever might befall me in the straight and narrow path I had chosen? Yes, I had already counted the cost, had already tasted the bitter cup, which I agreed to drink to the dregs, end quote. Shortly after John's death, Elias, his brother, meets with Brigham Young to get approval for the arrangement, and Brigham Young approves the arrangement and sets the date for the marriage in a year's time. He gives it a year's time. As the day grows closer towards her wedding, Mary Lois starts to lose her nerve. She feels more and more apprehensive about it. 
Although there's no question in her mind that she needed to do this, it was making her nervous. And so in May of 1856, a little over a year after John's death, she and Elias, together with his first wife and two children, made the two-week wagon journey to be married in Salt Lake City. Their wedding day was May 21st, 1856, and Mary Lois went to the Salt Lake City Endowment House, where President Brigham Young performed the ceremony to marry her for time, just for time, to Elias and for eternity to John. On the same, that same day, Elias and his first wife, Mary Perry, whom he had married four years earlier in 1852, were sealed for eternity. And again, we see this sort of practice where they're messing with these words time and they're messing with these words eternity. And we see that played out. Mary Lois says of the day, quote, I kneeled on the altar in God's holy house with the deepest dread in my heart that I had ever known. No physical strength could have drawn me there had I consulted my own feelings, but God required it. I sensed keenly it was no my happiness alone that was sacrificed, but it was marrying the happiness of others which rendered the cup doubly bitter, end quote. And of course, the historian Catherine Danes notes uh, from studying, you know, polygamy in Manti, Utah, that Religious motivations are the main reason to to do this. And Paula Kelly Harleen also says, who studied with Danes, that she found this theme too. That that there was a theme throughout all of these women's diaries, which is that the women said polygamy was hard. It nearly killed me, but I believed it was of God. And we see that happening here. It's also clear that Elias was as hesitant and reluctant to do this. Now, remember, he marries... He was married three years before this marriage. He actually married his sweetheart that he grew, you know, he grew up with, Mary Perry. And it seems that she struggled with this as well. So all three of them were deeply, deeply unhappy about this arrangement. And Elias is said to have had to talk to Mary and said, please, if at the very least, if you can just be nice to her. They moved down to the Iron County Mission in, in southern Utah. And uh, Elias would work there. Until the Iron, you know, Works mission failed in 1858 due to sort of this limited and really cheap quality of the coal in the area. The first few years were meager with the Iron Works mission failing, but Elias was probably one of the territory's biggest entrepreneurs and capitalists. And he developed a lot of different interests. He had, he was involved in the tannery, the Salt Lake City foundry, a soap factory, the Utah cement factory, a state quarry, the Utah sugar factory, and the Pioneer Patent Flour Mills. His company, Morrison Sons, operated the first marble monument store in Salt Lake City where they sold cement and marble memorials for graves and things like that and fireplaces and marble tiles. And they would, their marble would play a significant role in a number of the buildings, including the Desert National Bank, the city and county building, and one of the University of Utah's first buildings. By the 1870s and 1880s, the family had significant wealth. And Elias was also, you know, as he was, you know, gaining wealth, he was also gaining status. Of course, he had plural wives, he was wealthy, and he was well-connected. So he held leadership positions in the LDS church. He would serve as the second counselor in the bishopric of his local congregation, uh, which was the Salt Lake City 15th Ward from 1867 to 1877. And he was a high counselor in the Salt Lake City Stake and president of the high priest quorum in his ward for 10 years. And then he became the bishop of Salt Lake 15th Ward and held that position until his death in 1898. So the 15th Ward we see becomes 
sort of this place to fulfill Mary Lois's loneliness. Her husband would be gone a lot, and he would spend a lot of time with his first family. Mary Lois was very much involved in the the Salt Lake City 15th Ward. And the 15th Ward looks like a wonderful place to be. They would go on these social outings, and people would always be stopping by her house, men and women she would visit. She would visit with them often. Her husband would be out interacting with a lot of people. He actually made business with a lot of non-Mormons, which was rare for people at the time. But Mary Lois's life would sort of be limited to the Mormons around her. One of the things that she dealt a lot with were funerals and the dead who were, you know, dying around her during this time. She spent a lot of time with her church duties with the visiting committee. So they would go and help lay out the dead and then stay overnight with the dying to ease their suffering. So she, in her diary, she records many funerals that she attended and she would often comment on the corpse's appearance if it was nice or if it wasn't nice and comment on the, you know, funeral remarks and things like that. She also was very much involved in the primary. She was the president of the 15th Ward Primary Association, which she held for 12 years. She was in the primary for 12 years, and she seemed to enjoy the job. She was a little bit overwhelmed at first, but she seemed to enjoy it. She also liked to write. She wrote poetry. She would record clips from the desert newspaper in her or juvenile instructor in her diary. Another interesting thing about polygamy that many contemporary polygamists, Mormon polygamists, will argue today uh, is that polygamy sort of helped fuel this feminist ideal, right? That it, it uh, helped women break out of the mold of the traditional stereotypes. And uh, Mary Lois would be an example of this. She interacted with lots of people in the community through various things. And when men started going on missions or were gone for work, this led many women to pursue paid employment to bring additional money to their households. And so Elias would leave for a mission, and Mary Mary Lois was 30 years old and had three young children at this time. So lacking money, she began to work as a milliner using her skills that she learned from her mother, and she had coaching from her older sister. Her older sister, Ann Agatha, already had a millinery business in Salt Lake City. And so they would make hats and all of these great kind of interesting, cool hats, and she would talk about them in her diary. So that's what she was doing. Mary Lois also used uh, her political opportunities, and uh, we know that she voted on at least two occasions, both times for the Mormon-dominated People's Party. And... After the federal government revoked women's suffrage in Utah, she became interested in, in the national suffrage movement, and she attended meetings advocating for the right for women to vote in February of 1889 and August of 1893. And again, this is sort of this this weird juxtaposition. Uh, of course, we have modern-day leaders. You know, it was Elaine Dalton, who was the young women general president in 2013. And she said, you know, that quote, you will understand your roles and your responsibilities and thus will see no need to lobby for rights, end quote. And it's just a juxtaposition to how women were acting in the 19th century. They were, they were absolutely lobbying for rights. That's what they were doing. They were very involved. And so you can see why there's this case that Polygamy sort of did free up women to, to be more feminist because it, it gave, it gave them more opportunities to be independent. That said, 
I don't think polygamy is a, is a feminist principle because it's asking women to thrive under, it's adding another layer of oppression to women, in my opinion. So Mary Lois, we know, was very much involved in this stuff. Her husband, Elias Morris, would appear sporadically, but she does mention her children far more often than her husband, which we see with a lot of polygamous wives, of course. They would have better relationships with their, with their children than they ever would with their husband. You know, scholar Jill Mulvader says, quote, that it's common for plural wives to reveal in their personal writings a primary emotional involvement with their children rather than their husbands, end quote. And, you know, when Mary Lois's oldest daughter, Addie, moves out, she, Mary laments that it's as if a light in the house had gone out. Now, something that's interesting that happens, in 1879, Mary Lois's diary, uh, diary writes about her 19-year-old daughter, Effie. Effie was a young wife and married to Edward Treharn Ashton, who was an employee of Elias Morris. Effie and Edward lived within walking distance of Mary Lois, and they would see each other all the time. And Mary Lois's second daughter, Addie, was 17. Of course, she would have other sons, too, but um, I'm going to focus primarily on her relationships with her daughters. Of course, with Elias gone a lot, another thing that Mary would do is she would bless her own children. She would give them blessings. She would also call elders to come in at times to give them blessings when she didn't want to do it herself. And Elias would spend about every, how he broke up his time with his family is he would spend every other week when he wasn't gone in business or in missions. He would spend every other week with her family. But federal pressure would, would break up the family. We do know that by uh, 1885, and this is five years before the manifesto, her and Elias would stop living together. I think he was doing this to avoid prosecution, and it's, again, what, what we talked about in the sort of caste system, her being the second wife would, would lose out. She didn't appear to have any ill feelings towards Elias. They seemed to be friends. But her relationship with her first, with the first wife, Mary Perry Morris, was pretty distant. They rarely mention each other in their memoirs, and when they do, it's only to, with their connection to their husband. So it seems like this, this you know, provided sort of a wedge in their marriage, not a bridge. Of course, you know, before 1885, before they separate, Mary Lois began to hide to avoid, you know, prosecution. She kind of went on the underground. Women basically had two options at this time. They got out of the way, which means, you know, one would remain home and the others would go underground or relocate on a permanent basis. And at first, Mary Lois tries the first option. She tries to go underground but that was unsustainable. So on December 2nd, 1885, Elias advised her to move permanently to Provo, Utah, under an assumed identity. She would write, quote, Awoke about 2 o'clock, spent the rest of the night in thinking and contemplating my journey. Strange times, these, when a person is not safe day or night from burglars, deputies, end quote. So she leaves Salt Lake City, and I, and I guess this had to do with her trying to avoid both testifying in court and continuing to appear to be living in polygamy. She would stay in Provo on and off for the next six months and sometimes try to make it up to Salt Lake to visit. When she was in hiding, she actually wore veils over her face and did not acknowledge friends or even her own kids when she would see them on the street. She was scared. This is what it would have been a strange time, the 1880s in Utah. Her husband, of course, is getting prosecuted. They, they charge him with unlawful cohabitation, and they issued a warrant for his arrest. He was apprehended by U.S. Marshal E.A. Ireland 
on April 22, 1885, and placed under a $15,000 bond. Mary was terrified she would have to be subpoenaed and testify against him. By this time, she is separated from him, and the, a trial would happen in 1887, two years after, you know, um, they had publicly separated. And she would still see him on occasion, but very infrequently. She apparently felt some awkwardness, and, and it was not a nat, you know, a natural sort of family. For example, she records that she planned to attend his, uh, Elias's 60th birthday party on June 30th, 1888. She didn't want to go initially, but I guess her husband's daughter invited her. She wrote, quote, Barbara Swan came over to entreat me to come over and join the party as her father could not enjoy himself unless we were all there. I humbled myself to go over. End quote. So you can tell that there's this element of discomfort. In March of March 14th of 1898, at the age of 72, Elias accidentally fell down the open entrance of an elevator shaft, and uh, he would die a few days later. So back to Mary Lois's daughters. Her daughter, Addie, was in a monogamous marriage to George M. Cannon in 1890, and her youngest daughter, Kate, had not yet married and lived at home. But, of course, the manifesto had ended, but this did not convince a lot of Mormons that polygamy had truly ended. This would be a confusing time for this next generation, and this is important when we try to understand sort of the chaos that happens after this. Because, remember, a lot of people did not believe the first manifesto. Clearly, they did not, because, you know, the apostles are still marrying people plurally. So, you can see why no one really took the 1890 manifesto seriously. It did, it did start to make polygamy sort of unpopular. It was, it was something that was looked down on, as we've seen in some of these other episodes where women were sort of treated differently. They wanted to hide their pregnancies from their husbands if they were a plural wife. It was seen as unfashionable at this point. It was seen as something that had caused a lot of problems. But it was divided. And we can see this now in, in weird cultural things in the church. Maybe modesty is one, or maybe, the idea of rated R movies, maybe that's a silly, <laughs> a silly comparison because this, this actually had to do with people's lives. But it was certainly seen as something like some people did, but the more devout and righteous said, no, of course, we're always going to do this. I don't care if the world sees this as bad. Despite the LDS Church's official ending of the practice in 1890, Addie's husband, George M. Cannon, would marry two plural wives in 1901 one of who was her younger sister, Kate. And according to this sort of family tradition, Addie did not learn about her husband's plural marriages until after the weddings and was so upset when she found out that he had married her sister that she, quote, tore her hair out by the roots, end quote. So we see this confusion. Addie thinks she's marrying, apparently thinks she's marrying monogamously, Kate, her younger sister, decides to enter a polygamous marriage. And this is, of course, in 1901. This is 11 years after the manifesto. We don't know much how Mary Lois felt about it, about the marriage to Kate because she doesn't write about it in her journal, but we do know that she seems to have encouraged Kate's post-manifesto polygamous marriage. According to an oral interview with Kate's daughter, Catherine Morris Cannon Thomas, Mary Lois, quote, persuaded her to go into polygamy. 
you know, so they have the mother telling her daughters to do this, to go into polygamy. And yet something interesting is that Mary Lois's sons, Nephi and George, when they found out about it, that Kate had gone into polygamy or was going into it, they were very much upset because they knew what lay ahead in way of criticism. You know, the manifesto had been issued 11 years before, and uh, they were not happy that their younger sister, Kate, was going to go into this. So this, this sort of opposition of her brothers, Nephi and George, and her older sister, Addie, juxtaposed with their own mother's like encouragement to go, go into it, shows the differences in these attitudes towards polygamy that were not always along generational lines, but are starting to see it. You know, polygamy is starting to, polygamy was always bad in the sort of um, outside world. But as the outside world starts to creep into Utah and there becomes more outsiders, more Gentiles, if you will. And, you know, communication and transportation are increasing we see polygamy becoming less and less fashionable amongst everyday Latter-day Saints. Now, that's not to say that there weren't always monogamous Latter-day Saints that did not like polygamy. But again, polygamy, we're starting to see it move down from its elite status to sort of this sort of shameful status. And of course, we see this with the saints that came from Mexico, who are living in the colonies, who, f- who flee to the U.S. and are sort of shunned. They're shunned by uh, all the Latter-day Saints there. And speaking of Mexico, in 1902, Mary Lois would accompany Kate and her two-month-old granddaughter, Catherine Morris Cannon, into exile in Colonial Juarez, which was one of the colonies that we talked about in Mexico. Mary Lois would write about this, quote, About this time I was advised, if able, to go into exile with my daughter. This I was willing to do and would have gone to prison also, rather than betray my brethren or bear witness against them. I did not know whether I should ever see my home or my children again. Anything rather than betray my brethren, end quote. They would, uh, her and her daughter Kate would live in Mexico for about two and a half years, from December of 1902 to May of 1905. And during her time there, Mary Lois would pick up Spanish. She learned Spanish and took a class on the Doctrine and Covenants. And she would write tons of poetry about the Mexican desert. And this is where she writes a lot of her memoir. Apparently, this was a difficult time, though, for her and Kate. Uh, they struggled to keep their spirits up. Kate would give birth to twin daughters, both of who died within three days of their birth. And Mary Lois and Kate would also get sick quite a bit. They would return to Utah in 1904. Her other children, you know, as she's in Utah and spending out the rest of her life, she spends a lot of time with her kids. Her her children would be prominent. Um, for example, her son Nephi took over his father's company. And he became the president of the Salt Lake State during the time that she was in, Mary Lois was in Mexico. And he would also serve on the State Board of Education. He also ran for governor twice, governor of Utah twice, and was a member of the state legislature. He was on the progressive ticket of 1912 and on the Republican ticket of 1916, but he lost both elections. One of her other sons worked at Morris's and Sons and became president and general manager and served as the general superintendent of the LDS Church's Young Men's Mutual Improvement Association, and would later become an assistant to the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles in 1951. Mary Lois's daughter Effie served as a Relief Society president in the Salt Lake 15th Ward from March 1908 to 1916, and was the grandmother of Apostle Marvin J. Ashton. Her daughter Addie, remember the, the first plural wife that was upset about her husband marrying Kate? 
lived in a spacious home in Forest Dale, which was a suburban Salt Lake City refuge for plural families. All these families start to move to Forest Dale, and that's where they're sort of protected. She was a Relief Society president in the Forest Dale ward for 17 years. Kate, however, had to live in hiding on a farm in Ogden and took on the name of Mrs. Jensen. Her husband, George M. Cannon, would take the train from Salt Lake City and visit with her every Thursday evening, leaving again Friday morning. And according to family tradition, his political career came to an abrupt halt as a result of his plural marriages. Here's here's what Mary Lois would say about her daughter with Kate, which I think is a lot of her projecting her own feelings about herself. Quote, Sometime previous to this, your sister Kate had decided to keep one of the laws of God which the world, with the enemy of souls at the bottom of it, has been fighting for the last seventy years. And I will here bear the testimony, if I never bear it again, that God has sent to earth through this principle some of the noblest spirits that ever left their father's courts above, and so much faith I have in the celestial order of marriage that I would go to the ends of the earth to sustain it. Although I am verging on to my seventy-seventh year, the way is thorny and the path is steep. I have trodden it before them, and I hope that my children will have the courage and integrity to walk therein." End quote. So that shows you her attitude. This is this is Mary Lois's attitude. She knows that the church has now abandoned polygamy. She writes this in around 1911. So the second manifesto, 1904, would be would be out. It would be done. And yet we have Mary Lois saying, "I know that this is the way that God wants us to do it, and uh, I've done it, and I hope my my children will continue to do it as well." Before she died, she would knit for the Red Cross to aid the Allied soldiers in World War I. She would die on April 17, 1919, of heart trouble. She was buried on the opposite side of the Salt Lake City Cemetery from Elias Morris and Mary Perry Morris. I'm going to link to the book and encourage you to read that if you like reading these memoirs. It's great. She had a very interesting life. And as you can see, she, she keeps the theme that she really hated living the principle, but she really believed in it. And, uh... That sums up a lot of the struggles, but it also brings up this interesting mess, which I think is setting the stage for what's going to happen in the next next episodes for you to understand this conflict going on in the church. They were not of one heart, one mind. They were not united. The leadership had shown had shown the people that they would say one thing and do something else. And so it led the people to do the same thing. It led led the people to believe that polygamy was the right thing to do on those in the know. And yet in, in one family, just like this family, some of the children would grow up believing polygamy was not something that was kosher anymore, that was okay. And yet you have clearly some other parts of the family believing it was and practicing it. So... With that, I hope you continue to enjoy the Feminist Mormon Housewives podcast series, A Year of Polygamy. Thanks. Thanks.